Okay, so let's move more toward some practices here. Um, <clears throat> if you, you know, bring to mind those those two sort of ways of of, of operating, you know, the de- the doing column, as it were, you know, versus uh, or compared to or distinct from the being column. Uh, at the upper <coughs> limit, we uh, see the Bahia Sutta, and if you don't know this sutta, I'll just kind of quickly go through it. Uh, Bahia was a person who, by all accounts, was an historical figure who lived at the time of the Buddha, who was a spiritual teacher of, of significant renown and, and substantial depth of practice. So he heard that the Buddha was in his area and traveled, which means walked, to see the Buddha and came upon him probably on his alms round, uh, the Buddha's alms round, and asked the Buddha for his teachings. Please, noble sir, give me your teachings. And the Buddha replied, not now, Bahia. And uh, Bahia said for the second time, please, noble sir, give me your teachings. And the Buddha said, not now, Bahia. And for the third time, Bahia asked, please, noble sir, give me your your teachings. I, I beg for your teachings. Will you not offer me your teachings? And so traditionally, if you're asked three times, you're supposed to respond. So... In my own imagination, the Buddha who had other who was doing things, and then Bahia comes along, and you know, and so forth, looked Bahia in the eyes, and uh, you know, recognized both his uh, his his depth of practice and and uh, the ripeness of the fruit hanging from the tree in him, and also there was a little bit of I'm a, I'm adding this myself. So you really want my teachings? Are you sure? And so, kawoosh. You can't handle the truth. <laughs> he gave him the teachings in this deep pith way, which you see up here summarized. It's a little longer in the sutta, and I've really summarized the essence of it here. And the, the core teaching is to essentially, you know, when one is with uh, the aggregates, which is to say the form aggregate of the bare apprehension of reality and materiality altogether, and then after that the other four are purely subjective, when one is second with the feeling tone of experience, is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, or one is with perception, which means recognition of what something is, often informed by memory, or when is one, one is with the remaining, the fourth aggregate of the volitional formations, uh, which is to say all the other thoughts, emotions, desires, memories, psychodynamics, and neogram points, and all the rest of that in the mind, and then when one is with the fifth aggregate, which is that moment of consciousness, Okay, which is to say, that's it. There's, there's nothing outside the five aggregates in the, the Buddhist system. Uh, it, uh, when one is with any of that, when one is with the seen, or the, the known, or the heard, or the sensed, or the wished for, or the remembered, or the happied, or the angered, or the feared, whatever. When one is with all of that, one is to be only with that. There is to be just that there, in its suchness right there, without I, without you there. And when that's the case, in that moment, the apparent or constructed self is non-existent, right then and there. And that, just that, is the end of suffering. There may be pain, as Rick said, there may be arising states of mind, depression, anxiety, anger, whatever, longing, and so forth, but there is no one there to suffer them. That, just that, is the end of suffering. And that end is momentary, 
as Rick said, moments that we incarnate into, it's a momentary end. And with time and practice, it becomes deeper and broader, ultimately, to the ultimate, complete end of suffering. At the end of the path in which no longer does, does I, even in the subtlest form, arise. That's the teaching. That was the core teaching. In many ways, a summation of the entirety of the Dharma. And receiving that teaching in the account, that fruit dropped from the tree. The he was awakened on the spot completely. That was a good thing. Some time passed, and then, as the story finishes up, Bahia encountered an ox. And maybe, who knows, he was hanging out just a little too much in the right-hand column. <laughs> I didn't catch the fact that oxen have horns, and was gored by the ox and died. To me, that adds credibility to the historical account, because why in the world would they stick that part in? They would never do that in Hollywood, right? Anyway. And the Buddha, who was told this later, said, well, you know, it was a good thing that he was enlightened before he died. So, but the point, the essence point, is to look in terms of our own practice and imagine, what is it like to hang out here? How can we help ourselves hang out here more? Or move more and more in this direction if we have a sincere interest in the end of suffering. And if you look here, what does that look like? That way of, that, that, what does the experiencing of that look like? The phenomenology of that look like? It looks like the right-hand column. Only the seen is in the seen. Only the cognized is in the cognized. Only the trade adjectives are arising in, the, in awareness. There is just that. There's not the addition from the left-hand column on the bottom of self or I, me or mine. There's minimal or no uh, presumption of self as an object, um, you know, a, a target of investigation or... or, or desire or possessiveness, and there's very little sense or even no sense whatsoever of self as subject. There may well be subjectivity, but there isn't inherent in the right-hand mode um, the um, instantiation of self as an entity, as a being that's a subject. So the question then becomes, so far, right? The right-hand column is the Bahia column in a lot of ways. How can we hang out more in the right-hand column? Well, Rick and I are glad you asked. Because and we have some slides on it. As my kid said to me, Dad, you always have a four-point plan for everything. You know, I'm a maker of lists. <laughs> so we have, it's here's nine. some keys This here. is a nine-point plan. Is it? Is it nine? Yeah, it looks like it. Yeah, you're right, it is. Okay, so I want to just mention a couple of these, and then we'll do a couple of practices, which will take us out, you know, to the end of the day. All right? Um, <clears throat> so uh, several things a number of things activate the neural networks in the right-hand side. Uh, some of these statements are based on actual research studies. Others are, to me, more plausibly uh, speculative, but they, they're very reasonable here. So first of all, relaxation tends to undermine, you know, left-hand column activation. You're just relaxed. You're kind of hanging out, you know. You're not trying to do anything. You're, you're, you're more relaxed, okay? Another thing that does it is to focus on bare sensations and perceptions. So by the way, to avoid, you know, like your head spinning by me bouncing back and forth, I'll, I'll do that less. You might want to go back and forth between this slide and the right, the, the two column, the being doing, you know, slide in your handout. Anyway, if you just kind of be with what's there as it is, 
You know, that to me is that, you know, a lot of traditional instructions um, are fully sufficient. You know, one does not need an EEG or an MRI to be awakened. There are historical examples of thousands of people who fully awakened or certainly went a long way toward that. Um, on the other hand, it is interesting to appreciate the degrees to which traditional instructions um, have a very plausible and reasonable neurological explanation. And when one understands more of that neural account, it actually can take one to greater skillfulness. Anyway, so the second one there is to just simply be with the, the suchness of things as they are. Then a key point is to open to liking distinct from wanting. And I want to say a word or two about that because um, a lot's packed into that one sentence. Uh, a story you may know, uh, one of the major figures in Western Buddhism, uh, an American whose uh, Buddhist name is Sumedho, Ajahn, see honorific, uh, these days venerable, Ajahn Sumedho, uh, quite, uh, I think he's pushing into his 80s now, a uh, deep practitioner, uh, was a, um, a student of Ajahn Chah's, who, Ajahn Chah, Ajahn, and then Chah, sort of the godfather in a sense of the lineage of Vipassana practice that Spirit Rock emerged in and, and our sister center in Massachusetts and Barrie, um, Insight Meditation Center, Insight Meditation Society. Anyway, um, basically uh, one day a bunch of really, really pretty uh, Thai uh, women came to visit the, the temple, the monastery, and um, you know, the monks interacted with these uh, you know, really uh, pretty and appealing young women and the monks being obviously completely celibate and, you know, in their 20s, sap is rising. And um, so after the, the, the women left, Ajahn Chah said, apparently, this is the story goes to Ajahn Sumedho. So, Sumedho, what'd you think? Pretty nice, huh? And Sumedho famously replied, um, I liked but did not want. In other words, he allowed the pleasant to arise in the mind as a feeling tone, as a hedonic tone of experience, right? Pleasant and unpleasant arise in the mind. Um, but it did not move into cr to craving, clinging, and then suffering of wanting. Or as Annie Alinsky said to me one time, he said, self is not in the, in the feeling tone. Self is not in the vedness. Self is not in the feeling tone. Vedna is the poly term for the feeling tone. There's, it's not self there. It's just sensation, all right? Self arises in the formations in our reactions to the moment-to-moment -moment, uh, experiencing uh, of pleasant or unpleasant. And that's where the transition from liking to wanting occurs. And to summarize a lot of stuff very briskly, uh, in the brain, in a particular part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens, which is very involved in the rewards circuitry of the brain, in the basal ganglia and so forth, um, it has two different kind of hot spots. One registers liking and one registers wanting. For example, imagine a situation in which you've had a really full meal, and this is the time of year for it, and you've had a fantastic, you've been stuffed, and then they bring out this dessert. Oh my God, but it's so good you gotta eat it. All right, so you have a slice or a piece, whatever, and then they bring you out a second one, second helping, and they, you know, they say, no, really, 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 you gotta eat it, you gotta eat it, oh my God, okay, they eat it. And then they bring out a third helping, and say, here, just taste this. Then they put it in your mouth, and you go, and they say, do you like it? And you go, yeah, I like it. It tastes really delicious. Do you want any more? God help us know. You know, I don't want any more. So you can see you can decouple liking from wanting, satiation from desire. You're satiated. You still like it. You don't want it. You're satiated. You don't want it. But you can like it. All right? Or there, Sumedho could like, you know, uh, pretty women. 
and uh, allow that, but not have that tip into wanting, 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 you know, which is where suffering begins. Flip the other way. What about people who are drug addicts who don't particularly experience any pleasure, any enjoyment from the drug, but they desperately need it, right? Or people who, in my experience of hell on earth, Las Vegas, um, you know, are pulling the slot machines. You just look at their faces. They're like numb. You know, even they get a payoff, they just kind of stare at it, put the money back in and keep going, you know. So it's said sometimes that heaven is liking without wanting, and hell is wanting without liking. So in practice, it's very powerful. And this is really the second foundation of mindfulness, really, the uh, observing of the feeling tone of experience and the reactions that ensue. In other words, observing pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, and the reactions, the cascading, including the selfing, that tends to constellate around intense pleasant and intense unpleasant, the desire that tends to ensue. Or, as you can see in the quote here, this is um, a statement uh, purportedly, and for me, I think plausibly, from the Buddha shortly after his awakening. You know, some, uh, within a few years, apparently, uh, he uh, was in the woods in a, in a, a wealthy uh, householder came to visit him to pay his respects and encountered the Buddha just kind of there uh, and said, startled, uh, how are you, noble sir? <laughs> and this is what the Buddha, you know, um, said, purport, you know, presumably to him. It's a very great summary of a kind of psychological operationalization of enlightenment, right? Fully quenched. Quenched means, in a sense, um, that's nirvana. You know, the fire is blown out, fully quenched, uh, at ease. Sense desires don't adhere. Liking and disliking may arise, but they don't, in the traditional phrase, invade the mind and remain. Right? They don't stick. Fires have cooled. There's no longer fuel. Attachments, in the sense of attachments that create suffering. The Buddha had friendships, he had relationships with, with others after his awakening. He sorrowed when they died, but you know, not in the sense of an unhealthy kind of attachment. Heart's been led from pain, tranquil. The highest happiness, as the Buddha said, is peace. So one way to stay out of the left-hand column is to steer clear of wanting. Because, please forgive me here, what activates that left-hand column probably more than anything is wanting. Wanting this, really not wanting that, moves us right there into that left-hand column. So one great way to kind of hang out more on the right-hand side is to practice more with allowing liking and disliking to arise in the mind without tipping over into wanting. Okay, okay. so far on that? Okay. So then a couple more things here. I've mentioned some of these other practices, not knowing humor. By the way, st people being surprised or startled activates lateral networks. Humor activates lateral networks. I think creative breakthroughs pop people into the, the lateral side, and then they've got to figure out how to implement their creative insight. 
You know, Einstein's great account was that when he understood, real, he said the easy part was figuring out the whole speed of light, general, you know, um, uh, relativity thing, uh, um, special relativity. The hard part was translating that visual understanding, that imagery, into the linear language of science, which includes a lot of left-hand, you know, language, uh, sequential processing. So, um, you know, not knowing really takes us out into the right-hand side. Um, two things in particular which we're going to move into a practice for are to move more into gestalt processing of experience as a whole. Because very often what we do is we move analytically from part to part to part. You know, attention focuses on this, then it bounces to that, sometimes two to three times a second, certainly multiple times a minute. We kind of bounce around. But it's a very different practice to feel something as a whole, as a gestalt, which, first of all, is going to activate the right hemisphere, and second, moves us out into this kind of sense of presencing what's here without getting caught up in any part of it. Right? The midline networks, the left-hand column, is involved with parts, gets caught up with parts. Whereas if we experience our bodies, the breathing as a whole, or the body as a whole, or all of experience as a whole, that helps us disengage from the parts. It also lays a foundation for the fifth jhana factor. By the way, if you're interested in that, the fifth factor of non-ordinary states of awareness, the fifth factor being what's called um, unification of mind. So if you're interested in that fifth factor of unification of mind, a very nice training in that fifth factor, uh, which is one of the most subtle of the five factors of uh, jhana practice or deep meditative absorption practice, um, this practice, which we're about to do, of whole body awareness is very useful. Just in passing, and Rick and I will talk more about this, these jhana factors and so forth, on January 9th, just because you're wondering probably, what are the other four if you don't know them? Um, and they're quite useful. You can do this at home. You know, these five factors, you can practice with them at home. And my own practice really took off when I zeroed in on concentration practices and positive emotion, which is present in two of the five factors. Uh, the first factor is applying attention, kind of like, for example, at the beginning of each inhalation or exhalation, if you're using the breath as an object, applying attention. The second factor is sustaining attention throughout the duration of the object of attention, such as the duration of the inhalation or the duration of the exhalation, sustaining attention. Third factor is rapture or bliss, which is often, which is very embodied, has an arousing, a rising quality as an energy. Uh, people vary in the degree to which they can drop into that factor. Um, I'm kind of in the middle of the range. Some people just boom, bliss fast. Other people, it's just not going to go there, but it's really okay because the next factor is, you know, maybe even, even more important, joy. And joy is on a spectrum that includes happiness, contentment, and tranquility. Okay, those three states of mind are worth really tracking, particularly as they're distinct from each other. Okay, that's a real quick summary. And then the fifth factor is that unification of awareness where everything is a present in experience as one, you know, as one whole experience. It's a little bit like this. If awareness is like a stage, okay, um, and what's on that stage is what we're aware of, and what's behind the curtains or out in the wings is what we're not aware of, either temporarily or permanently. All right? What's on the stage is lit by a spotlight. Okay? The spotlight is the focus of attention. We're aware of other things. For example, be aware of the sensations in your feet right now. They were always present 
in your awareness, kind of in the shadows on stage, but there was a sensing of them, right? But it wasn't the focus of attention, probably, until I said it, right? What happens in the, the fifth factor of the jhanas and also in whole body awareness is that it's as if the spotlight moves out to include everything at once. And this is a very accessible way, actually, to train the mind and therefore shape the brain over time. And with a bit of practice, you can start doing this whole body awareness, which is quite useful, including in tricky settings or situations like business meetings or you know, hanging out with the in-laws or whatever. I like my in-laws a lot, actually, for the record. Okay, so that's that. So in a moment, we're going to do this practice of whole body awareness and then talk about it. And then we'll try to do another practice and then wrap up for the day. Okay? Okay? You want to try this? So I'll, I'll just tell you from experience. Um, it's very natural, especially in the beginning, uh, for the sense to crumble. So even if you just get a second or two of this sense of kind of everything being present there in the mind at once, that's good. And if it crumbles, it's okay. Just kind of try to open up into it or open out into it or regenerate it again. And we'll do this in a series of steps and then kind of talk about this. Um, if you like, I encourage you to explore this method in, um, in your own personal uh, practice. So, to jump in, be aware of breathing. Just check in and notice some of the several sensations of breathing, such as in your belly, in your chest. In your throat, cool air coming in, warm air going out. around your upper lip or nose. And then more subtly, how your hips move, how your hips rock back and forth a little bit, most likely with each breath. Also subtly, how the shoulders 
shifts slightly or can with each breath, which then moves the neck and head. To begin with, see if you can be aware of all the sensations of breathing in the torso at one time, which includes the belly and the chest. Maybe also sensations in the back, both the lower back and especially the upper back. Different ways into this are a kind of knowing of all the sensations at once or an opening to all of them at once. Feeling the torso as a whole moment by moment. Giving over to being the torso as a whole moment by moment. If the sense of the whole crumbles, that's fine. Just open out into it again. The whole torso present in awareness at once as a single gestalt or a single unified percept. gradually including additional sensations of breathing into the sense of the whole, such as adding the sensing of breathing in the throat, 
So it too is presenced in awareness along with the other sensations in the torso. And then as you can, gradually adding other sensations such as at the upper lip or subtly in the hips and legs or the shoulders, neck and head. So that there is a gradual opening out into all the sensations of breathing, presenced as a single whole. Abiding as a body breathing. Aware of the whole body as it breathes. All the sensations of the body presenced at once in awareness as it breathes. And then, as you can, expanding further to include all the other contents of awareness, sounds, thoughts, attitudes, wishes, whatever else arises in awareness, 
so that all of experience now is presenced in a unified way. As a single moment of experience, moment after moment, known as a whole. allowing sensations, thoughts, other contents of experience to come and go impersonally. Not attempting to own anything moving through awareness. Awareness like space without any edges, boundless through which or in which moment by moment all of experience appears and passes away as a single unified percept. not trying to locate sensation or any other aspect of experience in any particular place. 
thoughts and sensations and sounds appearing and passing away in a vast and boundless space of awareness. with little or no sense of I. There is awareness and there are passing contents of awareness. There need be no I added to awareness and its contents. in the last minute or two here, opening to whatever is available as a peacefulness, a tranquility in which as much as possible, there is simply awareness and its transient and ownerless contents.
So in our, in our last few minutes here, speaking of Ajahn Sumedho, uh, he has a beautiful teaching here about trusting in, in awareness rather than its contents, or in effect, trusting in liking rather than wanting. Any last, perhaps, comments about what that practice was like for you, or any questions about whole body awareness moving more into whole experience awareness, which is where we went? And then um, I kept going into uh, more of a panoramic awareness place, particularly in terms of the boundless, edgeless space of awareness, which also tends to light up those lateral networks. So those are a series of practices that are neurologically informed that support the lateral network activation, that supports mindfulness, and in its epitome, supports the Bahia teaching. So that's what that practice was. So any comments about that or anything else as we finish up in the next 10 minutes? You mean your eyes are closed, but you're just there's a non-representational visual patterns? I think basically the the you know the as Rick said the the forty percent or so of the cortex that's involved is it's just kind of discharging. The retina the retina is constantly active, and so some of that stuff is coming back along the optic nerves and being processed. Uh, so many times you'll see a mandala-like thing for me that just kind of consistently expands. In addition, if you're very, very quiet, um, you sort of see the, the, the kind of the basic resonance frequency of the visual processing system. So the, it's not something you try to quiet. No. Ajahn talks about the nada sound, which is that high-pitched hum that's always there in the, on the backside of, experience, of auditory experience. And there's a, back, a, a jitter to your visual thing that you can actually see on the backside of your retina that is, that is just the, it's the background idling frequency of the brain in the visual system. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Were you, how many of you were able, at least for one or two seconds, to have some sense of the whole, starting with the torso? 
That's very good. Very good. Isn't it interesting? That change from attention, the spotlight kind of bouncing around the stage or other things moving under it and away from it, you know, moment to moment, to a sense of the spotlight widening to include the whole stage at once. Right? And that, that is good training in what's considered to be a fairly rarefied jhana factor, the fifth factor, uh, kagata, uh, unification of awareness. So that's great. You could do that. Yeah, please. into account, kind of, let's say, the dimmer that light gets. Um, oh, I see. It spreads. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dimmer, I mean, although people do sometimes describe an intensification in almost the sensory presencing of things. Experience becomes even more vivid, in a sense. I don't know. I guess in the sense that it's like you're less focused on one thing, so you have to kind of take a broader view, so it's like more kind of yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can't really put your finger on what, what it is. Yeah. Did any, how many of you experienced perhaps a little sense of self or a de- decreasing sense of self as the sense of the whole increased or as you just did this practice? Yeah. Wanting probably decreased, um, judgment decreased, and simply presence. That, that's, the, that's the right hand column in the lateral networks of spacious mindfulness. Well, I'm okay. One more. I, I'm okay with wrapping up. Feels okay. All right? Feels okay. So rather than forcing it, I feel like a teacher. I'm a frustrated fourth grade teacher. Got to let everybody out early for summer. Anyway, so we'll, we'll stick around a bit, Rick and I. Um, I'll just say to myself. Recess is sensation. To end, I uh, really appreciated your attention for a hardcore topic. This topic is considered one of the thorniest and most difficult, you know, in, in, in Buddhist thought. And um, I think we, we navigated these waters fairly skillfully today as a group, which was great. And um, I would just say uh, for myself that the general process of not taking life so personally is really good for oneself And it's really, really good for the people you live with. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.